listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, May 3rd, 2020 edition of Labor Express. I hope everyone had a good virtual May Day on Friday. There's plenty of virtual May Day events happening, so hopefully you took part in some of those. Tonight's episode of Labor Express Radio is in large part a follow-up episode as we continue to explore how unions and social movements are responding to the COVID-19 crisis and the need for physical distancing with increased social solidarity. On our last episode, we had several interviews. We could not fit the full interview on the program, and I promised that I would bring you more tonight. Moises Savala, Director of Organizing for Local 881 of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, or UFCW, is back tonight, but this time he is going to talk about his union's organizing victories in the cannabis industry. Eric Basir, trained motorman for the CTA and member of ATU Local 308, is also back, this time to talk about his own struggles with COVID-19 and his frustrations with getting testing and sick time through his employer. But we do have new voices on the program as well. We have nurses to hear from from Strozier Hospital, where staff said the hospital is not following CDC guidelines and is therefore putting both employees and patients at risk. And later in the program, we take a break from the COVID news for the first time in, gosh, I guess it's at least been a month to a month and a half now, to discuss this year's other big story, the 2020 elections. Bernie Sanders may be out of the race, but just like in 2016, his campaign has swelled the ranks of the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. We will hear about this situation from a member of the DSA's National Political Committee, Marianella Deprile. But let's start with those nurses. On Monday, nurses, members of National Nurses United, or NNU, at Stroger Hospital in Chicago, Chicago's flagship public hospital, held a physical distancing COVID-safe small rally outside the hospital to protest what they say are practices forced on the staff by hospital administration that violate CDC guidelines and are placing their health, that of their co-workers, their patients, and their families at risk. These include the use of inferior and inadequate PPE, personal protective equipment, even though the hospital has stockpiles of the proper PPE. It also involves other testing practices that fall far short of what should be required to ensure a COVID-safe working environment, as safe as it can be for workers tasked with treating COVID-19 patients. We only have time to hear from two of those nurses tonight, and only a couple of their stories and complaints, but the rest is available on the web now through the laborexpress.org website. Hi, I'm Genevieve Lewis. I'm a nurse here at Stroger, and I work in the neonatal intensive care unit upstairs. Our nurses are doing a job that carries a risk to our lives, our families, and our community. The hospital should at least provide us with proper protection, and they are not doing this. Several of our neonatal nurses, including myself, were bullied and intimidated by management to remove our level four coveralls, which which do confer protection from viruses. We had to invoke our union rights and refuse to remove our coveralls when working with suspected COVID-19 patients. We are a public safety, hosp- safety net hospital. We should take the lead in stopping and controlling coronavirus. Instead, our hospital administrators over there are being negligent and irresponsible. We shouldn't have to fight management and the virus. 
We want policymakers to ensure that all hospitals nationwide have proper level four PPE to protect our nurses so we can do all our jobs responsibly and with peace of mind. Management needs to stop harassing nurses who are simply trying to protect themselves and their families from this virus. Hi, my name is Consuelo Vargas. I'm an ER nurse here at Stroger Hospital. Management is not following directives from the Chicago Department of Public Health nor federal OSHA. Cook County Health and Hospital System is obligated to screen all staff for COVID-19 symptoms before and after their scheduled shifts. This is not being done. I have not been screened during this crisis, nor have my colleagues. Management must screen all staff for symptoms and should take their temperatures as well. Currently, management is not tracking staff who have been exposed to COVID and isolating them. Instead, it instructs staff to work until they have symptoms, even after exposures. This could be exposures to patients or our coworkers. There's nurses throughout the hospital that have been out on COVID, and none of their colleagues were checked to see if they had symptoms or tested or swabbed. According to the CDC, 25% of those infected may never have symptoms, yet may still pass the infection to others. This policy puts patients and staff at risk. We are demanding contact tracing and testing for those who are exposed regardless of symptoms. We are demanding a policy where those who are infected are not forced to keep working and endanger others. Again, that's all I have time for tonight, but the full press conference is posted online and you can uh, hear it or even see it because there's a video of it at laborexpress.org. It also includes transit workers who were there to support the nurses and talk about their own issues with COVID-19. So check that out. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. Moises Zavala is a director of organizing for Local 881 of United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW. Moises was on our last episode talking about the workers at Raimundo Food Group in Bedford Park who walked out over COVID-19 concerns. Moises, in that same interview, started to talk about another interesting topic that we did not have time for last week, UFCW's recent successes at organizing workers in the growing cannabis industry. He also talked about how UFCW has pushed for COVID-19 protections for grocery store workers. Here's the remaining part of that interview. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the cannabis industry and the organizing that's going on there. This is a topic, actually, that we kind of dropped the ball on. There was some interest uh, that was raised with our listeners in this topic, and I had re- reached out to you about this a couple years ago, and, and we kind of dropped the ball. At the time, I think it was when you first had started to organize, and there was a group of workers in the Chicago area that you were working with. And I, I guess when, we, when I was reaching out to you for, you for this interview, I mentioned it, and, and you had said that you had just had a recent victory there. Can you talk a little bit about some of these uh, recent successes you had? Sure. Uh, this is a, um, a, a cultivation center uh, for uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, um, uh, cannabis companies, Cresco. Uh, it's a uh, cultivation center in the uh, Joliet area. Uh, this group of workers reached out to us. Uh, and again, one of their primary reasons for organizing was on health and safety. And of course, everything else that is typical, uh, you know, they wanted to improve health care. They wanted to improve wages. But to many of them, the health and safety was was uh, was the, the core reason for for unionizing. Um, we supported these workers in their efforts to unionize. 
they 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 finally um, finally had their election in January, and and they won o- overwhelmingly. And I say they finally had their election because early on we um, um, the the local reached out to to Cresco and and wanted to uh, approach things in, in good faith and and uh, so we we asked for recognition. Uh, we we asked Cresco to recognize these workers as part of the union, uh, and and Cresco uh, unfortunately did what many companies do, and and that is drag things out. So we we uh, waited for Cresco a total of about a month to give a decision um, uh, to recognize these workers as part of the union, and uh, finally they said no no let's have them let's have them choose in a uh, secret ballot, okay? I mean, and, and that's totally, totally fine, but, you know, don't don't drag things out and allow people to really freely uh, uh, choose without any interference uh, from the company. You know, early on in the campaign, Cresco started uh, an anti-union campaign. They posted anti-union uh, posters around the facility, that the union is going to take you out on strike. The union just wants your money. The typical anti-union uh, propaganda that many companies use. But let me tell you that uh, what really helped these workers, aside from their obviously their courage to 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 stand against this company, was to build alliances with the elected officials. Um, in in a couple of meetings, uh, the elected officials were invited to uh, meet the workers to hear from the workers directly what were the conditions. The elected officials reached out to Cresco and said, you know what, we've met with your workers and we don't want any shenanigans. Respect the right to unionize. And that uh, uh, leverage that the workers had um, pushed back on Cresco to to, um, uh, prevent them from engaging in any uh, obvious anti-union propaganda like they did early on. And and it was that that uh, obviously secured and and and, and felt people uh, the workers felt comfortable in, in voting yes. But let me tell you what really um, uh, tied the, the 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 nut, as they say, was a treat. Uh, I'm sorry, a um, a tweet from uh, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders that uh, uh, a tweet that said, you know, we support. Um, the the Cresco workers in Joliet to unionize and uh, something to the effect of you know uh, go and, and vote yes and that really sealed the deal with a lot of uh, workers because they they saw their campaign not just as a as a little campaign uh, of a group of workers but this was now in the eyes of 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 of, uh, of the country. And they wanted to make sure that they were part of history. And it was the first union election in Illinois, and they won overwhelmingly. Wow. Wow, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. And there's more to come, it sounds like, on the near horizon. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And let me tell you, that uh, victory of the workers at Cresco and Joliet is extremely, extremely significant because... Um, other uh, uh, cannabis workers uh, saw that you could actually unionize in the industry. 
nobody in, in none of the workers in the, the in this dispensary were fired for union activity and that's a very strong message to send all the other workers not just in this industry but in other industries that uh, it's illegal for the company to fire you for union activity um and if they do um the the union will definitely file charges and 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 do everything they can to uh um uh, help remedy the situation but because the 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 Cresco uh Joliet facility won their election um uh, it really um motivated other cannabis workers to do the same thing and and i i believe there's another election coming up now in another facility is that right actually we have and, and and hopefully before the day is 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 over today, uh, hopefully we'll hear from the labor board with um, on an election date for an action a Cresco dispensary um, that is in Lakeview. It's by uh, by Wrigley Field. Um, again, what motivated that group uh, to unionize was the uh, the lack of concern uh, during this crisis and. Uh, that's if that's what it's going to take then we have to be ready uh now tomorrow and and next week to uh do our best in in supporting the workers their effort to to, to unionize listen i i've taken up a lot of your time already and i don't want to take up too much more of your time but before you go i do want to at least ask you uh briefly about the workers in your grocery stores because of course they're you know very much on the front lines here um what have you been doing uh, with them in terms of organizing with them to try to keep them safe? You know what? Um, uh, I, I, I can't tell you how um, uh, proud we are of our members in uh, these grocery stores. Um, they, are, they are true heroes. Uh, they, they, they go to work. Uh, they, they face the crisis. And it's all to make sure that people buy uh, and, and get what they deserve, what they want in order to be safe in their homes. So, um, I mean, I, I really want to do a, a shout out to all the grocery workers, members of Local 881 and, and all the other uh, uh, members of, of uh, other uh, UFCW locals. Uh, thank you for doing the work that, that you're doing. Um, thank you for, for being there for us. Um, let me now share with you that um, we've been able to um, uh, 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 talk with the uh, companies that we represent, and um, we've been able to uh, negotiate um, uh, hazard pay for our workers. Uh, we've been able to uh, have what they call uh, um, uh, some, some clear screens uh, by the registers for the cashiers to um, at least to help prevent uh, people from, from, from talking directly at them that, uh, may be uh, infected. Um, the, the, uh, social distancing, I mean, I, I, I'm in, uh, amazed in some of these stores, they have, they have stickers on the, on the ground and, um, the customers have been, have been, uh, uh, cooperative, uh, in, in, in that sense, uh, in some stores more, more than others. But, um, None of this, none of this could have could have happened without the uh, uh, the will um, and the uh, uh, participation of our members to uh, to to do their jobs and um, uh, just 
their commitment, their commitment to their community. Right, right. And I understand, too, that the, the, the employers have been convinced to provide, like, you know, masks and gloves and things like that as protection as well and, and things like that. Is that true? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, our members are wearing gloves, are wearing masks. I mean, uh, and, and we're living through a weird moment in our history where um, the uh, um, the people in this country uh, are unable to get what is necessary, the equipment that is necessary, the, the, the healthcare workers to begin with. So obviously in the very beginning, the, the priority was to make sure that uh, uh, healthcare workers had masks, for example, and gloves. And, 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 and now we see that the uh, grocery workers, and we've been pushing for grocery workers to have those same kinds of uh, standards as well because of the uh, level of uh, uh, exposure they have to uh, to the public. And now now they have uh, 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 equipment that they can use to, to be able to continue doing uh, an excellent, excellent job. Right. Yeah, that's certainly true. That's really, uh, Out here where I'm at, too, I've been every time I, I, I try to avoid going as much as I can, but when I do go, I try to let the, the, the workers know how much we do appreciate uh, uh, what they're doing because they're, they're definitely putting themselves at risk to be out there. So um, thank you, uh, Moises, so much for taking out so much time. I know you're very busy these days, so I appreciate you spending time to talk to us, uh, and we'll keep doing our best to highlight uh, what these workers are facing and the amazing steps they're taking, uh, not just for themselves, but on behalf of all of us by, by taking these actions, they're really, you know, they're really, uh, benefiting the class as a whole. So, um, so thank you for taking our time to talk about their stories. Oh, no, no, on the contrary. Thank you. Thank you for taking the interest and, 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 and thank you to all, uh, uh, local 881, uh, EFCW members and, and members of, of, of all the unions that are out there um, uh, uh, committed to, to their communities. Uh, and, 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 you know, we, we will uh, remember this uh, for, for, for uh, a long, long time. And we should, uh, we shouldn't forget, we shouldn't forget the, uh, um, the work that, uh, that these uh, folks uh, did uh, to make sure that uh, their community, their community was uh, uh, well supplied uh, during this crisis. Thank you very much. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. On the last episode of Labor Express, we also heard from CTA trained motorman Eric Basir, who's a member of ATU Local 308 and Transit Workers Unite. On that program, Eric discussed a group of trained cleaners who staged a walkout over COVID-19 concerns. Eric himself has been battling with COVID-19 for several weeks. You'll hear him cough quite often in the following interview. And in this interview, Eric describes his experiences and the difficulties he and other transit workers have faced dealing with the CTA bureaucracy when it came to getting tested and using sick days to quarantine. Disclaimer here, Eric speaks here on behalf of himself, of course, and for Transit Workers Unite, but not, he does not speak representing the CTA or ATU. I'm here with Eric Basir, and he is a transit worker in Chicago. You work on the rails. You know, we, we talked to Eric Slater frequently, and I just talked to him recently, and he works on the bus side, but you're on the uh, on the rail side, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, how long you been with uh, CTA, and what do you do with CTA? So, um, you know, first of all, uh, I always like to put out there that <clears throat> uh, I'm speaking as a transit worker as a worker 
you know, in transportation. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, elected leader. I'm not a union officer. I'm not speaking on behalf of the union. I'm not speaking on behalf of my employer. I'm just speaking on behalf of myself. And then there's a, a, a caucus of us, a very uh, small budding group within our union uh, that's independent that uh, that we try to organize uh, for um, justice issues. So um, <clears throat> I am uh, a, a train operator and uh, a motorman. Some call him a train driver. And um, I, I work on what's called the Brown Line. And um, <clears throat> it's, it's a, I just love the job. It's a lot of fun. But uh, two weeks ago, reported to work. And I'm like, you know what? <clears throat> I'm coughing. <laughs> and this thing just was out there. And they, they said, no, nope, go home. <laughs> so uh, here I am. Right, right. How you doing, by the way? Well, um, you know, thank God. Um, I'm, I'm, I hate to use the word luck. I, I really don't believe in it, but I'm fortunate in that uh, I have a cough. It's it's the strangest cough I've ever had um, because it's this is two weeks now, two weeks, and it just seems like it's just staying in me. Um, but that's the only symptom I've had, and I am in quarantine. My family's taking good care of me. Um, I. Um, it, 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 it's, it's been stressful, however, extremely stressful because of, uh, of the, um, the strange sick leave policy. The straight, the strange sick leave policy of the CTA. Yes. <laughs> it's, and how, how, how is that work and how's that made it difficult for you? Well, you know, <clears throat> there's various levels of, of, of bureaucracy you must go through. Um, and if you don't get every part exact, uh, you end up not getting close to getting paid for being off. <laughs> so, so my situation was very unique because I um, – and actually everybody's situation is unique, but mine – I just became full-time a couple months ago and finally, you know, was able to get my family covered and had to switch insurance and all this stuff. Cause our part-time force, they don't, they don't, uh, our flagmen. And, and that's what I was, uh, only get insurance for themselves, not their families, you know, uh, really a shame. Uh, but, uh, me, I just changed over, so I never got to see my doctor. So I, I never had an initial visit. I just got him. You know, I finally found a doctor. <laughs> but then this outbreak started, and uh, they said, "No, we can't. We can't. Uh, <laughs> we can't see you, <laughs> even phone or the internet, because you haven't had an initial visit." I'm like, well, "What do I do?" Yeah, so I called called the insurance that I get through through my employer and they said, Hey, we got something called telehealth. So, <laughs> so I said, I'll take it. <laughs> so the problem is that because it's telehealth, they've got their paperwork system. My company's got their paperwork system. So where I work, I got to give the telehealth my paperwork, 
but the telehealth gives me something else that's not compatible with what the company wants, even though the company uses <laughs> the service. And <laughs> it gets a little more complicated uh, when you're part-time because uh, <clears throat> then you will get everyone who get who has COVID-19 or COVID-19-like symptoms, according to the policy, you're going to get up to two weeks pay even if you're on quarantine. You just have to have all that paperwork, you know? And so I unfortunately have been dealing with that for the past two weeks and stumbling around. Um, I still haven't resolved it. So there's been all kind of issues and it, because I'm now beyond my two weeks, I had to work with a manager to try to make sure that I don't get, you know, written up as skipping work. Uh, Cause you know, I'm on the phone with the manager <laughs> coughing you know, and she's like, well, you're not going to be going to work. <laughs> I said, yeah, but I need to get paid. And so does these other people. And uh, so I have to apply for something else. So there's another program <laughs> at the job. <laughs> but guess what? There's like <laughs> hundreds of people before me. So, <laughs> so hopefully I'm going to get in. And hopefully my coworkers are going to get in. So what me and, 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 and others, you know, in, in Transit Workers Unite and, and, and our, our, our Justice Coalition caucus is we're trying to encourage our union leadership. And I, and I say that with all sincerity, okay? Encourage union leadership to listen to us, to take our concerns but let us voice our concerns. Let us come up with solutions. Let us vote on the solutions and vote on the demands through telephone and, and, and internet online meetings so that we can put demands as a body that says, okay, we need to have testing, <coughs> testing and treatment on site on site at every garage, every shop, every terminal. It will streamline this process, right? Because you're going to have a medical professional right there that's going to say, okay, you're sick, I'm, here's your sick slip. But everything goes through one tube, one channel, you know. And we, we proposed this as Transit Workers Unite. And it was ironically at our union meetings, we, we, we brought it up, unfortunately, uh, uh, we were, um, you know, we were told that, no, we're, we're not going to deal with that. It's already being taken care of. The company's taking care of it. But unfortunately, that didn't work out. So um, here we are. So we're still pushing. We're still pushing so that, so that everybody, part-time and full-time, can have the same access. It's two weeks. It's three weeks. It's four weeks. Whatever. Let's just get the sick people off the job. Let's get them paid. And the, and the, and the co-workers that have children <coughs> that are out of school and at home, let them go take care of them because they're so stressed out, you know, and pay them, you know. And, and what they're doing, and this was told to me, is they're saying, well, you're, you're done with your two weeks. 
okay, you got, you're going to get two weeks pay if you get the right paperwork. Um, you can, you can give up your vacation days as paid time off. And, and I said, well, well, I don't have any vacation days and neither do a bunch of other coworkers because we don't start accruing as full timers <laughs> until a year from being, if you were part-time for six, seven years and then became full-time, it doesn't matter. In our part-time, nothing, they get no paid time off. Our, our contract is, has, it needs to change. We need to fix that. Um, but I'm, I'm like, okay, I got to give up my future. Like, yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> and it's not in our contract, by the way. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, I got to go through this other process now, which is going to take time. And, and we're not getting paid. I mean, I, I don't, ex I expect to have nothing for a couple of weeks, but you know, the stick deck and whatever, and friends, I got a friend, he's going to give me, he, he told me he's made, just call me up. I'll, I'll give you money. So I know my family's set, but, but a lot of other people aren't that fortunate. So, you know, the, the, the CDC said in the guidance, it says, look, let employees use up their paid leave, but it doesn't say vacations, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> this is like, come on, don't do that to us. Right. So let, let me just cl clarify here too, because um, you said a lot there, and I just want to be clear. So you never were able to get tested yourself, then, huh? Okay, I apologize. I left that out about the testing. So right, we all have to. We're kind of on our own when it comes to testing. We're on our own. So you know, sometimes uh, you know our un our union, um, our secretary treasurer, uh, Sister Deborah Lane, she's real diligent about posting uh, online where. The testing sites are in the city, and and other coworkers do it as well. We all try to help each other out. It's it's not like union officers are bosses and have to give us everything, and we we cannot do anything until they speak and give us blessings and orders. But but we should share with each other, right? We should share, and so people are sharing. So coworkers and and our union has said, yeah, go to this hospital. So I went. <clears throat> and I got my test on a week ago. <laughs> I still don't have my results. So, you know, and, a lot, and I'm not the only one, but, but you know, it, it's, it's so frustrating. Right. Right. Yeah. You shouldn't have had to go through that. Yeah. Right. I'm sure there's a lot of your coworkers that still haven't been probably been able to get tested because they, they've really had to, to try to find their own methods to get to test. Yeah. Yeah, and they're not being paid. They're not. It's not like I can get, you know, a couple hours. Uh, so what they're doing, because like when I was working, it was like, well, geez, I got no time. And then when I was sick, I was like, okay, I'm dealing with all this paperwork. And then the doctors and the guidance from the city of Chicago is, look, if you don't have any severe symptoms, stay the hell in your house. <laughs> don't go out, you know, and if you're still stuck with it <laughs> after so many days. You just got to get tested then. So, and that's what I did. I tried to follow. I do, I did my best and it's so hard, you know, and then they get, get upset with you and, you know, it's like, look, I don't mean to be sick. <laughs> right. And then, and then, so then you, you were able to get paid for some of the time initially, but now because you're in this netherworld, 
beyond that time, you're probably going to be out and not get paid now, it sounds like you're saying, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's looking it's looking like that for me and a lot of yeah unfortunately yeah you're de- you're just trying to figure out a way of not getting getting uh you know basically fired for for not going in but you're 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 basically having to rely on other people to help out because you're not going to get paid for a period of time yeah and i and i tell you you know what i want to work <clears throat> i do i want i'm looking forward to going back to work you know but it's like I, I tell them, okay, just so you know, I'm coughing. <laughs> so, so you want to deal with that liability, okay? Because <laughs> I don't want to kill my coworkers either, and they don't want to kill me. But it's like we're we're all in this position where where we have to work because we're we're we just don't want to deal with the bureaucracy and being stuck and being punished for being sick because. I got one year. There's oh, there is another way for me to get paid, but I have to be working here a year as full time. And so, and every time you do it, it's called the sick book. Every time you do it, it's a hit on your record. So, so you accumulate points by which you can be punished. And I say punishment <laughs> because discipline. If you look at the root of the word discipline. Discipline is what you do to yourself. Discipline is self-inflicted. You know, in the Bible, a lot of my Christian coworkers are very, you know, religious, and they, they, they talk about the disciples of Jesus. Jesus wasn't making them follow him. They were following him on their own. <laughs> so they were disciplining themselves. <laughs> so don't, don't tell me getting sick is, is, is discipline. It's punishment. <laughs> the other parts of that interview that aired last week, again, can be found in the full interview can be found online at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. We need to take a short station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear how the end of the Bernie campaign does not mean the end of socialist politics in 2020. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. Well, the 2020 election is now all but officially down to two candidates from the two dominant mainstream parties and a few yet-to-be-determined distant third-party challengers. This is a disappointing state of affairs for most progressives and social movement activists, many coming from the labor movement who have been filled with hope by the possibility of the first Democratic Socialist president. But the end of the Sanders campaign does not mean the end of the movement it helped to inspire. Like during and after his 2016 campaign, Sanders has inspired thousands of new activists, most of them young people, to take up socialist politics. The primary beneficiary of this Bernie bump has been the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, which is closely associated with Senator Bernie Sanders. Now, it is very important that I remind listeners that Labor Express Radio is a nonpartisan radio program. We do not endorse candidates or political parties. And though I would argue that as a pro-labor, pro-working class media outlet, we broadly embrace pro-working class politics, which by any measure defines socialist politics more than any other political movement, we are ecumenical and do not affiliate to any particular socialist or working class group, party, or politics, or philosophy. 
all those disclaimers reissued, it has to be acknowledged that the DSA holds a unique place in the working class and socialist politics in the U.S. in recent years, if for no other reason than its sheer size at this point. It is really the only socialist grouping that can place any claim on being close to being a mass party, and a mass socialist political party has not existed in the U.S. in at least 70 years. This state of affairs is worth spending a bit of time on on Labor Express Radio, especially given DSA's growing partnerships at the national and local level with major unions. So I thought I would inquire just how much of a Bernie bump the DSA was experiencing this year, and if it in any way matched the experience of 2016. I spoke with Marianella Deprile, who is not only a member of Chicago DSA, but is an elected member of the National Political Committee of the DSA. Marianella is also formerly a member and staffer for UAW Local 2865, which represents grad students, and she's active with the DSA Labor Working Group. Marianella explained that one of the things that makes the DSA and their relationship to the Bernie campaign so interesting and attractive to thousands of activists is the idea of class struggle electoralism, which avoids the putting of the winning of elections as the overriding goal of the work and makes movement building equally important. I started our conversation by asking Marianella about the 2016 experience, which is when she herself joined the DSA. We're seeing, of course, the Bernie campaign wrapping up now uh, with uh, him dropping out of the race and his endorsing of of Joe Biden. Um, But rather than, I think, you know, people who were very excited about the possibility of a Democratic Socialist president, uh, you know, certainly that it's, it's unfortunate to see that that possibility lost. But I think they people should uh, be quite excited about the movement that came out of that and the movement building that's happened. Um, and we can look back to 2016 as to, I think, an idea of what that means, because in 2016, uh, so many people came out of the Bernie campaign and then became involved in socialist politics for the very first time. And DSA was the main beneficiary of that. Um, you know, it was, it, it was in 2016 that the DSA... Uh, became the undisputed largest socialist organization in the U.S., which has now, I think, become their like catchphrase for themselves uh, since, uh, for good reason. You mentioned yourself that you joined in 2016. Can you talk a little bit about you know what you know about the growth that the DSA saw after the uh, Bernie campaign that year? Yeah, totally. So I think really what we saw in 2016 is that People were sort of trickling in um, to DSA during the Bernie campaign, and you know DSA supported Bernie um, in 2016, and so that that led to a, a little bit of a renewed energy. And certainly DSA was more present than it had been, sort of like online um, during that time. And then we really saw a couple of big bumps. Um, in 2016 and then in 2017, the first bump being when Trump was actually elected, um, so in late 2016, um, and then um, in January of um, 2017 um, when he was inaugurated. Um, And so, you know, over the course of about a year, DSA grew from five to 6,000 members um, to about 30,000 members um, in, in late 2017. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because the, the organization at the time, I think what happened is that, you know, Bernie called himself a democratic socialist and he um, t- 
talked about his policies, his democratic socialist policies. And so people just were like, okay, well, I, I, I like Bernie. I support Bernie. I must be a democratic socialist too. And that's how they, they ended up um, in DSA. But really the, the, um, the growth that we saw at that time was, was kind of shocking to a lot of people. And it, it led to, um, you know, what is now the second largest ever, I think, convention of BSA in 2017, because the, the one that we had last year was even bigger. Yeah, and it's been sustained, right? I mean, it's not, it wasn't like a flash in the pan, from my understanding. Um, you know, the, the organization has, you know, maintained largely that larger membership over the course of the last uh, three, four years. Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, com- comparing sort of what happened in 2016 to what's happening now, I think, um, one of the biggest thing that, things that this larger organization allowed us to do, allowed DSA to do, is really start to take on serious national-level campaigns, which before, you know, hadn't, it had been able to do in, in some ways, but not really um, at, at scale. So um, one of the first campaigns that, that um, sort of fit the, that bill was the campaign for Medicare for All. Um, and that campaign really um, allowed um, the organization to continue growing, to continue bringing in members, and also to um, produce um, really deep wins across the country, both in terms of winning uh, paid sick leave as part of, which was part of one, of, which is you know one of the tactics in the Medicare for All campaign was fighting for sick leave, as well as doing things like flipping Senator Lloyd Doggett in Texas. Um, and pressuring him to support Medicare for all. Um, and I think that just really speaks to um, the way in which um, the Bernie campaign, I think kind of both in 2016 and in 2020 kind of put some issues really sort of at the forefront of people's minds and popularized a lot of issues like Medicare for all. Um, and then DSA um, was really able to, to continue building a grassroots movement um, to win on, on issues like that, um, even outside of the like uh, presidential um, election framework. Right, right. I, I guess if there's two key issues, and certainly DSA is a very multifaceted group now, we can talk about that a little bit in a minute too, which is the, uh, uh, the exciting, you know, kind of uh, multi-tensy, multifaceted aspect of DSA. But, but if there are two, I, I think, campaigns that DSA has most been associated with in the last, uh, you know, since uh, the 2016 uh, Bernie campaign, it is Medicare for all and the Green New Deal, right? And DSA really got invested in those two campaigns and has made a huge mark. I mean, it's amazing how those uh, two issues have become uh, such central uh, aspects of the political debate in this country uh, since 2016. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think that um, I, at least one of the things that has been at the forefront of my mind lately is just how essential um, the both of those demands are becoming or are, you know, they're, they've already been essential, but the, you know, the, the current crisis that we're in just highlights how just how essential they are. You know, the fact that, you know, that there's like tens of millions of people who are, who are already becoming unemployed, who are losing their, their employer tied health insurance. It just highlights um, the importance of Medicare for all. Um, and, and we've seen that, you know, support for Medicare for all 
has spiked. Um, and I think now something like 69% of people across the country support it. Um, and with the Green New Deal, I think, you know, there's a couple of things. One thing is that the, the crisis that we're in right now is, is has been, you know, regarded by a lot of people as just like a preview of what's to come um, in terms of the, you know, the depth of, of the climate crisis that, that is coming if we don't take quick and swift action. And the other thing I think is that it's um, one of the key demands of, of a Green New Deal is a job guarantee that would also include job training. And I think that is going to be more essential than ever, um, given given the number um, of people who are already and will be unemployed, um, and and I think that that's that's what's so important about um, the work of a of a, an organization, but the socialist organization that also um, is a national organization, um, is to really. Um, wage that fight for those demands at the national level and at the same time sort of link it to um, local struggles and and local demands. And, and that's something that um, DSA is very committed to doing. And I think that that's been one of the reasons that the organization has grown so much and, and been able to, to continue growing, like you say, like to sustain that, that growth. And talking about that growth, so you mentioned that in uh, 2016, uh, the DSA went from about 5,000 to 6,000, which right off the bat, that's a fairly substantial you know, size for a, for a social organization in the United States. But it went from that up into, you know, up to like 30,000 members. Do we have a sense of you know, what the growth has been now like uh, in 2020? Yeah, so um, I, I have some like fun numbers Um so in, in about the like two hours after Bernie dropped out, we had 500 people join the organization. Um, and then in the week after Bernie dropped out, we had um, over 3,000 people join. And then um, since then, I think, um, I think another around two or 3,000 have joined, but um the right now the the total membership of the organization is right around sixty six thousand members across the country. Wow, wow, wow! Yeah. So those are certainly historic numbers for a socialist organization in the United States. That's that's really interesting. Um, Definitely. Do we know? And those are national numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Do we know in Chicago what the what it looks like? So I don't have the numbers for Chicago, but I can get them or I can, I can let you know who can get them. Um, but I know, I've, I mean, I've heard just anecdotally that there have been, you know, um, like a couple of hundred people joining over the space of one or two weeks, which is, which is, you know, quite a few, but I don't have the exact numbers. Yeah. No problem. We'll follow up on that too uh, uh, later on as well. So that's no problem. But um, wow, that that's that is really exciting. That's really tremendous to hear. Um, and you know, I think another thing that you raised um, in our, in your discussion there too that I wanted to emphasize, which is this kind of the difference between electoral work, which you know, when people I think you know typically get involved in a campaign like the Bernie campaign or any other typical election campaign it's really you know you know uh pretty much just an electoral uh campaign electoral issue as opposed to movement building right um and that is what makes i think uh the bernie campaign and then its connection to dsa so different 
uh, is that so many people that were involved in the Bernie campaign are not looking just to get involved in electoral politics. They're interested in building a movement. And so um, it was a very easy transition to go from working on the Bernie campaign to join the DSA and then being a part of that movement building that followed afterwards. Yeah, totally. And I think I think there's a couple of things like um, at play in in what we're seeing happening in terms of people joining joining DSA out of the Bernie campaign. I think one thing that we're seeing um, is definitely what you're talking about, right? Like, um, I think a lot of people were drawn into the Bernie campaign because it wasn't, you know, politics as usual, or it wasn't like electoralism as usual. Um, and I think another thing that really played a big factor is that DSA decided relatively early on, um, pretty early in 2019, to endorse Bernie Sanders and then to run an independent campaign for Bernie Sanders. And so I think what that allowed us to do um, was to articulate sort of our own goals that we had um, in supporting Bernie Sanders um, to really sort of like distill his platform and frame it in terms of demands that DSA was already supporting um, and in terms of demands that maybe specific chapters were already supporting. So, you know, for example, here in Chicago, we've been um, doing a campaign for lift the ban to lift the ban on rent control, which you probably know is a statewide ban. Um, we, we've been running that campaign for a few years, um, and so we were really pretty easily able to tie Bernie's housing platform to this very local issue that we had already been campaigning around. Similarly, with um, the Green New Deal, tying it to a local campaign that DS, Chicago DSA has been working on um, to democratize ComEd, the, the local um, energy utility. And so... I think um, I think that decision, that tactical decision on the part of DSA to run our own campaign and be able to make this link, these links, made it so that um, both you know people who were um, in, drawn to the the Bernie campaign were then able to like see the ways in which like they could continue to be involved in the movement um, even after the Bernie campaign was over, and it also I think um, made it sort of apparent why that movement beyond Bernie was so necessary. Um, and then I think, you know, we can talk more about this. I don't know if, if um, it's exactly like what you're interested in hearing about, but um, at the 2019 convention, DSA um, passed a resolution um, called the Cross-Struggle Elections, which basically outlines um, an approach, a kind of strategic approach to electoral work that would prioritize, you know, over merely just winning the election, would prioritize um, naming the enemy, naming explicitly socialist demands, um, organizing, right, using using a campaign and using um, the candidate's office if they got elected to continue to organize. Um, as well as build movements for um, specific issues. And I think that um, that approach of cross-struggle elections really informed DSA's approach to the Bernie campaign in such a way that, um, you know, is allowing us to, like, absorb all of these people who are, who are really excited about Bernie and are now really excited to continue to fight. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up. I think that speaks very much directly to what makes um, 
you know, DSA and many of the people that got, got involved in the Bernie campaign so different than other forms of electoral work. I, I, a lot of us that I think uh, tend to be concerned about getting involved in electoral work because of the way it tends to pull people away from, um, you know, movement building, um, you know, felt much more comfortable with this because it doesn't do that. It, it, it's integral. It's, 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 it keeps, you know, tied to that those kind of bigger movement building efforts uh so i'm literally glad that maybe if you want to say a few more words about uh about that uh you know class struggle approach to electoralism i think that's really worth highlighting yeah totally well i think you know i think that like there is this sense um often right like you're saying in electoral work that like it's very limited and it can often really like burn people out right you're like you know, your one goal is to like get enough signatures and then get enough votes and then get the person in office. Um, and really the way that um, myself and other people who really um, pushed for DSA to adopt this, this um, cost struggle approach to elections, the way that we've been thinking about it is that elections are one tool in the socialist tool belt, right? Um, and they're one tool that we can use to popularize our ideas and to build our movements. Um, and, you know, we can't deny the fact that, like, elections bring a lot of people out. They make, they get people active. They capture people's attention. And, and we can take advantage of all of those things, but we don't have to um, get swept up, right, in, like, the politics as usual of them. Um, and so really what we should be doing is um, running candidates and supporting candidates who are open socialists, who can really serve as, as like, tribunes for our politics, which you know, certainly Bernie Sanders, like, proved, you know, even though that he, he didn't have to be like coached to do it, um, he proved very much to be a tribune for democratic socialism. So that's just one, you know, very prominent and big example, but there are certainly others. Um, right? We should be running these candidates who are, who are tribunes for our politics, who will commit to being organizers before, before anything else, who will commit to using their office to, to organize the working class, to name the enemy, to, to very clearly say, you know, um, it's, you know, landlords who are responsible for, and developers who are responsible for the housing crisis and things like this. Um, and also um, to really make it a key point of, of running elections to bring people into the organization um, in such a way that they become committed socialists for life, right? And that they're not sort of stuck in like the every four year cycle of like getting activated for an election not really knowing where to go and then sort of getting activated again, um, rather um, getting them, getting people really organized truly um, and absorbed into, um, into um, the organization. And I think another really big and important part of, of class struggle elections is the way in which um, unions um, can become like a really key partner um, and a really in, important both constituency for a potential candidate or, or potential uh, person who will hold office, um, but also, um, you know, a source of, um, of power. Um, and I think that, like, that, that is um, something that makes it really exciting, right, that, like, DSA is now um, at the national level per partnering with unions, but also certainly at the local level here in Chicago, working really closely um, with organized labor. Like in the case of the other interviews tonight, my interview with Marinella Deprile had to be edited for time. 
In particular, I had to cut out the rest of our conversation about the new DSA partnerships with organized labor, which is really an interesting topic. To hear the full interview, go to our Facebook page, which is found at laborexpress.org. Again, that's laborexpress.org, and you can hear the full interview there. And I might even return to part of that interview in a later episode because it's really important, I think, to hear more about this partnership that uh, DSA is forming with unions nationally and locally. Well, that's all for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers and not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. The songs are themes called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in next Sunday at 8 p.m. for another edition of Labor Express. <laughs> Is it?